Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while in motion with Stitcher. It's a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher right now, you have a chance to win some free money. Downloading is quick and easy. It takes just a few seconds. You just go to Stitcher.com or you can find it in the App Store. You download it. And then when you register in the promo code box, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of Other People will then be waiting for you in your favorites. And you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content always available on demand without syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or do it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer, whatever you got. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you sign up. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is the program. This is the Relentless Episodic Progression. Today's guest is Hari Kunzru, critically acclaimed author of several books, the most recent of which is a novel called Gods Without Men. It was recently published to wide acclaim by Knopf. Uh, very excited to have Hari on the show. He and I are going to be talking in just a moment. Before I get there, though, I, I uh, figure I should mention that I was just watching some nature programming on the television, and I found this very upsetting. And uh, it's one of those things... Uh, that I should know better uh, than to do because I'm very deeply affected by nature uh, programming, National Geographic type programming involving predators. And this particular episode featured the gazelles crossing the river in Africa. Perhaps you've seen this one. Uh, and the crocodiles are feeding as the gazelles are trying to cross. And there is frequent carnage. And what I've realized is that uh, this hurts me 
It affects my heart. I can't watch it. I have to turn the channel. Or if I do sit there and endure uh, the spectacle, I will watch uh, with great resistance through splayed fingers. Because, uh, you know, for me that stuff is scarier and more disturbing than just about any horror film ever made. I don't like that. I don't like that aspect of nature. I don't want to know about it. Or I I guess I kind of do want to know about it, but I don't want to see it. It's tough to cope with for me. And uh, another example, I remember watching uh, that Planet Earth series on the Discovery Channel uh, from a couple of years back. Uh, It was the one in HD. It was this big deal. And there's a particular episode and a section of an episode where there's the helicopter camera tracking a wolf from overhead. And the wolf is chasing a deer across a vast plain. And it's this long extended chase, this painful chase. And the deer is like zigzagging, trying desperately to get away. And this wolf is uh, relentless. And it eventually catches this poor deer and takes it down and kills it and eats it uh, the way that animals do. And, of course, uh, the truth is that the wolf uh, needs to eat to survive. It's a law of the jungle. And uh, this animal is, is biologically programmed to hunt and eat deer and to be a predator and to devour flesh. And, uh, and because this wolf caught this deer, that means he survives and lives to see another day. And so on some level, uh, that's a happy story. And the wolves are, you know, thriving in the wild, which, you know, is a good thing. But it's still brutal and, and just uh, a harsh fact of life. Uh, which I don't like, and which reminds me uh, of a book idea, or I guess it was a screenplay idea that I had years ago, uh, back when my wife and I were were still dating. And it came to me in a dream, which is sort of unique, because that doesn't happen to me very often. But this this story came to me somewhat fully formed in a dream, and uh, it would be a film with very few words in it, uh, almost like a silent film about a guy and his dog lost in the wild. And and now it's occurring to me. Have I talked about this before? I, I hope not. <clears throat> but anyway, this guy and uh, his dog are lost in the wild, and they are in some sort of trouble. I believe the guy is injured, and he's starving, or they are quickly starving. That's sort of what the movie's about. It's how they run out of food, and they're hanging out together, and they can't move because the guy is injured, and they're sort of marooned in this spot. And uh, eventually, the man dies of starvation and uh, maybe blood loss or something. And, uh, and then <clears throat> like the last 20, 25 minutes of the movie uh, is, is just the dog. And it, it would basically just be this silent situation where you're watching the dog debate whether or not to eat his master's carcass. <laughs> um, and so, you know, he goes back and forth. Maybe he like tries, but then can't. And then eventually Uh, the dog decides that he just can't do it. And so he too winds up lying down and dying right beside his best friend. So it's like a love story between man and dog. And I actually dreamed this and it was an extremely emotional dream, as you can imagine. And I remember waking up early in the morning and then waking up, uh, my wife who was then my girlfriend and it's like five in the morning and it's dark and I'm like, I, you know, I just had a dream. I dreamed the entire plot of a movie and I pitched it to her and she was like, uh, that is the most depressing, <laughs> that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard in my life. And then she basically just rolled over and went back to sleep. 
And, you know, upon further reflection, it is a very heavy story. Uh, but it does bring up some interesting questions about the bond uh, between man and man's best friend. You know, it's something, it's something that I actually think about. You know, if, if I died and my dog was starving, <laughs> would my dog eat me? And, I, you know, to be honest with you, I think Walter would. I really do. Uh, my current dog, my, my French bulldog, Walter, pretty sure he would eat me. But my old dog, Merlin, my border collie, uh, no way. Absolutely not. But, uh, but I think Walter would eventually cave. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, what do I care at that point? At that point, maybe I would want him to cave. Uh, you know, I don't care. I'm not here. But, you know, you just wonder sometimes, like, how deep is this relationship? Like, what does it really mean? And uh, how much love is actually there? And, and it's hard to say. So, anyway, I, maybe that's kind of a weird tangent. Uh, why don't I uh, step aside and uh, get this over with and then let the main event unfold. Uh, right now, here you have it, folks. This is my conversation with Hari Kunzru, author of the novel Gods Without Men. I think I was very well primed to develop an unhealthy interest in the desert. The first time I went out there was in the days after 9-11. Um, I got stuck in L.A. I'd been in the Iberian California over the this summer for a couple of months, um, actually kind of researching a previous novel and then driving down from Seattle all the way down to the southern border. And I was supposed to fly out on 12th September. And to cut a long story short, I had a, a scary experience uh, giving back a rental car where uh, on on, a, on the, the morning when all the uh, the uh, freeways were closed and uh, everything in the airport was closed and everything was very tense, but the charming rental car company wouldn't actually give me a break on bringing this vehicle back. And I ended up kind of on the perimeter of the airport, got pulled over by the LAPD, who looked like they were going to shoot me. Oh, and it was really only my English accent at the time that they, you know, I had a beard as well. Um, <laughs> only my English accent really kind of saved the day. Um, and I decided I was staying in West Hollywood at that time and just all the conversation in the diner downstairs in the motel where I was staying was like, was LA going to get hit? You know, what, who were the terrorists? What was going on? There was this really paranoid atmosphere and I ended up deciding I didn't want to be there, drove out into the Mojave and spent the next kind of week while I waited to be able to get a plane, kind of contemplating what had just happened and... Uh, and driving around in this quite kind of remote area of Eastern California. And then I didn't get to go back again until much more recently when I first came to live in the States four years ago. And um, and I had a I had a project that I was supposed to be doing, a novel I was supposed to be writing all set in 16th century India. And that kind of fell apart on me. I, I just got this fellowship at the New York Public Library. Everything was going great. I had perfect opportunity to write, and then suddenly I didn't have anything to write. And uh, these friends in LA said, look, if you're freaking out, why don't you just come and we'll take a road trip? And I found myself in Joshua Tree for the first time. And and that was really, that, that was all she wrote. I, ever since then, I've been going back and in a more or less directed way, taking different trips to different places, but mostly back and forth across the Mojave, either renting a car out of LAX or, or out of Vegas, and, and then seeing what I could find. 
Now, do you are you camping when you do this, or are you staying in motels? I am the king of the motel six, basically. Um, yeah, I I think I talked about recently, and I've I've probably spent about three or four months just driving around in total. Um, you know, some kind of cross country road trips and things. Like I drove fairly recently from LA to Albuquerque, which was a great a great trip, and but mostly mostly in the Mojave, which which I think there's something very, very special about it. I mean, something about the altitude, there's something about the, the quality of the light and, uh, and, in, and culturally, actually, to be, to be honest, I think, you know, it's, it's position is the sort of, um, forgotten backyard of the West Coast. Well, yeah, yeah, and when you say very interesting, well, no, yeah, just like just the one detail that you pointed out there with the quality of the light, which, I think extends to Los Angeles in some way, at least. But I, I mm. I've, I think I read that. I want, I want to say, I want to say David Lynch was talking about it in the context of filmmaking, which makes sense because that's why they originally came out here to do the movies. But it truly is unique, you know, how bright and uh, beautiful the light is here, which doesn't get talked about enough. I don't think. That's, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, when you're out in the high desert and it's just a summer's day and uh, and uh, you know, getting toward midday. The intensity of that light coming through the thin air, hitting that white soil, uh, is so so extreme that actually it's got some. The contrast gets reduced. You know, you see the world gets bleached out. It's, it's an incredible thing, and you know, you feel that the boundary between the earth and the sky has somehow been uh, been lessened there. You know, and you add into that kind of other things that occasionally you have to make the. The, the sudden dust storms if you're on a salt flat on a fire or a dry lake or, um, you know, weird phenomena like kind of mirages on the road and so on. I mean, it, it's a kind of place that's full of strange optical phenomena. Yeah, well, yeah, no, and you know, it's like the balance. Uh, it, it, it presents an interesting balance between uh, danger and menace and uh, holiness. And I think the book speaks to that as well. And, you know, where do you fall on that line? I mean, it sounds like you kind of fall on the side of the holiness when you think of the desert, or do you do you see it more as like a a place of great danger? Well, I, I suppose I've, I've had some extraordinarily beautiful moments in the desert. So, yeah, I would I would tip towards holiness. But I am also aware of the, of the kind of darkness that's around there, that kind of, you know, you brought up David Lynch, that kind of lost highway, Feeling of of non-specific menace, and you know, and the places it's it, it's a place where people go to bury bodies and cook mess, and and um, I've I've hung around occasionally, and I don't know, I, I you know did bar crawl in twenty Saturday night bar crawl in twenty nine palms once that was quite eye opening. Ended up talking to all these kind of old old meth heads who were living out in one of the trailer parks there. I mean, these guys. Who were really very sketchy. That's that's the best way to put it. And then you put all the all the military angle to it. You got the young guys charging around in their trucks, looking for a Saturday night fight. You know, guys at the Marine base, and there is an edge of menace to the place. And I think that you know that adds to the whole. I don't think it makes it, it it makes it such a an important place to think about because those two things are together. Because it's it's waste ground. You know, so many, so much of what happens in the desert is stuff that's been shoved out there because people don't want to see it or 
people don't want to think about it. You know, the, the nuclear waste in the upper mountain and the, the missile testing ranges and the bombing ranges and the, the you know, the, the landfill and all this kind of stuff that's going on there. It's, it's abused land. And, um, you know, so all these, all these different meanings that it has, you know, as you say, the holy and the profane and all that stuff together. Well, yeah, no, and it's, it's it's interesting, too, when you talk about the elements of society or, you know, not only like the uh, the environmental elements, whether it's nuclear waste or whatever, but when you talk about the people that are out there and a lot of times how they're, they're marginalized, which is why they're there in the first place, uh, mm. but they're also in they, – they also are in, uh, stand in contradiction to one another. Like when you talk about uh, – and I guess this might not be the, uh, the perfect example of what I'm saying, but just hearing you talk about uh, – you know, meth addicts combined with, uh, you know, Marines, <laughs> that's a combustible, right. that's a combustible combination. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody ends up in the parking lot outside having their, uh, conversation. Yeah. So, uh, let's talk about pinnacle rocks because that's a particular, uh, area in the Mojave, uh, that is obviously a fascination to you. Can you describe that a little bit? Well, I mean, I should say that the pinnacles in the book are not the same as the Trona pinnacles. Uh, you know, the real rock formations out, out in the Mojave. I mean, I, I was thinking really when I invented this place, I wanted something that would feel like the kind of place that humans would want to put meaning on, that would be unable to see without, uh, ascribing it some kind of higher meaning. Um, so in my book, there are just these three spires of rock kind of reaching up out of the out of the desert, and um, and you know the the um, the actual formation, the Trona Pinnacle, so many many spires, kind of weird, uh, almost a anthill like looking spires of rock. But I was uh, very struck when I visited a place called Giant Rock um, in Landers. California, just on the north side of Joshua Tree, which apparently is the world's largest freestanding boulder. And um, the kind of this, this, you know, it just, it just draws you towards it to find this enormous rounded rock in the middle of, in the middle of nowhere. You know, it's almost impossible not to want to stop next to it and have some kind of feelings with it. And I, I, heard a story about a, a guy who'd actually been living under there in the 40s and had uh, had started to contact Venus because he was worried about the Cold War, and that was one of the, the germs for the plot of the novel. So you actually, and who did you hear this from? Well, I, I, you know, I can't remember. It could have, it could have been an internet posting. It's kind of one of those things that just kind of came hurtling towards me, and I made it my business to find out as much as possible. But this, this guy was called George Van Tassel, and he'd been an aircraft engineer in Burbank. And what, I, mean, I think he had a family gas station in there as well. And, and, and the, this guy had kind of come by the gas station, this old German prospector who was heading out into Mojave to dig for silver. And the Van Tassel family had helped him on his way. And then many years later, George heard that the prospector had died actually he'd been accused of being a spy by local people during the second world war and the marshals had turned up to his to his place and he actually dug himself a hole under this bar a sort of burrow under this rock where he was living 
and he refused to come out of his hole, and so they'd try to flare down there or smoke bomb or something, try and get him out, and he was storing his dynamite in there. And so this guy, Frank Kritzer, was killed, and yet he was no kind of spy. He was just a ham radio enthusiast, and that's what had been um, making local people suspicious. But Van Tassel decided, for whatever reason, that he wanted to take over this now empty room under the rock, and he moved. He had a young family, he had a wife and two kids, and he moved them all out there in 1947. <laughs> and uh, and that's where they lived for the following you know, 20 years or so. And very soon after he moved them there, he was sleeping outside, and he was visited by an extraterrestrial craft. And that set his the rest of his life in in motion because they told him that the that the humanity was about to destroy itself with nuclear weapons, and the only way that uh, human beings were going to be able to survive, that the Earth was going to be able to survive, is if we were to become wiser. The only way we were going to become wiser was by living longer and gaining wisdom. So they gave him the secret of life extension. And uh, and he, he spent a long time um, touring around, doing speaker meetings, a lot of college campuses and stuff, trying to raise funds to build his life extension machine, which he eventually did, and it's still out there. It's a place called the Integratron. Um, looks like a kind of little observatory out there, and uh, it was supposed to have a, a big electromagnet electromagnet at the center of a small wooden domed building. You would walk walk into the building, be bathed in positive ions, and uh, and uh, yourself would be healed. We were all going to live to 150 and be able to rule the world in a wise fashion. Um, and of course, in classic classic UFO uh, mythology style. Van Tassel is about to switch this thing on, finally, the combination of his life work in the late 60s, when he falls down dead of a heart attack. Oh, no. and, yeah, and the mysterious men in black turn up, and they take his plans, they take all the papers, they take the electronics, and uh, the place falls into disrepair, and it was, it was briefly open as a disco in the 80s. And now has been bought by these three sisters from LA who run it as a meditation retreat. So you can actually visit the the place. It's not it's not going to be it's not going to extend your life to be in the building. But you can have a something called a sound bar. You can go and um, and lie on a, a mat and listen to somebody play these um, uh, Nepalese temple bowls mm-hmm. you know, that make particular tones. Well, I, no, I, I love how they always take these places and, and, and you know immediately. Like I feel, I see this happening with old churches that have you know since been vacated. They they immediately turn, uh-huh. they immediately turn them into nightclubs. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, what well, happened, happened here? Yeah, several in the line right here in Chelsea with that was that that used to be a church. Wow. So so okay. So a question uh, related to UFOs. Uh, you know, after doing all this research, writing this book, learning about these people, uh, you know, obviously you have some interest in uh, the unknown in, in UFOs. Mm-hmm. Do you have Do you have any solid feelings about it? I mean, I, like I can tell you how I feel, and then maybe you can respond. You know, and like I, I want to believe, obviously, that there uh, are, is other life out there in the universe. It's way too vast to think that there's not. I think it's a little bit foolish to think that there's not something out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I'm not 100% convinced that it's ever visited here. Uh, I feel like a lot of the evidence is, is sort of shaky, and it's the kind of thing that people really would love to believe. But I, I just I can't imagine that they would be this elusive. Like if someone could get here, you'd think that we would just see them. It's it's always so you know, it just seems a little bit suspicious to me. Like where where are I'd, you at? I, 
I pretty much agree with you there. I think it seems vanishingly unlikely that there's not life out there somewhere. However, almost everything about the history of the UFO phenomenon suggests that this is this has a lot more to do with humans than it does to do with extraterrestrials. I mean, my take on it from reading and talking to people is that actually the UFO phenomenon arises as a kind of result of a... I mean, it, it couldn't kind of couldn't have started anywhere other than Mojave because you've got the, all the aerospace testing, you've got the military installations, you've got this, this moment just at the end of the Second World War when there's this sudden new threat, new need for secrecy, and a new wave of, of, of testing going on. And it's in a place which has this pre-existing tradition of... of uh, spiritual inclinations, let's say. And m- my feeling is that when, pe- when people first started to report these these sightings, um, military intelligence would have got wind of it quite quickly. And I think there's, there's good evidence that over the years, various people who are involved in military intelligence have kind of stirred pot because the general disinformation caused by all the various UFO reports, all the searches, everybody wanting to believe that there are autopsy aliens in a hangar in um, Area 51 and all these other kind of things, is actually was actually quite a good cover for for the top secret tests that were going on, the various aircraft and missiles all being you know, and there, these were this would have been extremely valuable information to America's enemies and uh, and the the UFO people formed a kind of useful cover because and there's quite a good book by a guy called Mark Pilkington um, which describes various quite credibly well documented encounters between UFO researchers and people from fairly high up in um, uh, in the US intelligence community and uh, with these kind of tantalizing things that they knew something i.e. they were just kind of keeping the, the whole thing going um, if you look at, at the way the, the way people report UFOs in the first kind of ten years or so, almost after the Second World War, the aliens are almost always humanoid. They're almost always very beautiful, and the encounters are extremely gentle. They're mostly reported as being from Venus, um, and the the general vibe of it is that these guys are here to help us. They're here to to, to save us from this new threat. Only later in the 50s, once the security state has really got going and people are aware that there's this new massive secret hinterland to American life that's caused by the, the, the military build-up of the Cold War, then the aliens, they turn nasty. People finally start reporting what we now know as the greys, you know, the E.T. The E.T. type aliens with the almond eyes and the kind of some three-fingered hands and so on. And people start reporting these encounters where they're abducted, they're messed with in various ways, they're probed. They're, um, and gradually as time goes on, this kind of mythology elaborates. There are the good aliens, the humanoid ones, there are the bad ones, the greys, or at least the neutral ones. And, uh, and the location they come from as we explore near space, it always retreats. You know, initially they're from Venus, then when once kind of uh, various kind of space probes have passed Venus, then they're from Alpha Centauri or further and further away. You know, it's a kind of ever receding horizon. They're because they're like projections of our wish to believe that there is 
greater meaning in the universe than we're aware of. Um, and they're also projections of our various feelings about you know, the own potential for disaster and the kind of politics of the secret state and so on, you know, fully elaborated kind of X-Files thing that we now live with. It's such a, a kind of telling commentary on the ballooning of, of, of the American secret state. I think it's, got, you know, it's all about here on Earth rather than up in the sky. Yeah, I mean, and like when you t- when you talk about people who uh, are you know claiming that they were abducted and are telling these stories uh, in vivid detail and are maybe even exhibiting uh, signs of psychological trauma or even physical trauma. I mean, like the, the there's an elaborateness to to the lie if if it is indeed a lie. You know that uh, I think I think people are capable of making themselves believe a lot of stuff as well. I mean, you know, I think people can, can get themselves to a state where, you know, it might as well have really happened to them if they do feel traumatized. And, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think often it's a cynical thing at all. I mean, maybe there are deliberate diseases in there, but I think a lot of people genuinely feel something has happened to them and they actually cloak that in, in far more kind of concrete terms and concrete language than maybe they experienced it initially. I mean, I'm, who, you know, who knows? There's always there's always room for some possibility. But I mean, I really lean towards the notion that this is a this is a very human way of expressing feelings about the unknown. Because of course, you know, the, the UFO wave in the 40s wasn't the first time this kind of thing had been reported across the West in the 1880s and 1890s. If you look at old newspapers, you find that there are documented sightings of airships. There was this kind of wave of airship sightings that took place over 15 years, and occasionally even the, the airships would tether near some lonely farmer watering his cattle, and, and an airman would come down, and they're described as human but not human. And this was at a point just before airship technology was, you know, was, was really um, functional, and um, and it's quite interesting that you know, the UFOs turn up at a point when we're beginning to think about space exploration. They're a projection of the next thing and, and the beyond. Well, so what if, okay, so let's say, I mean, hypothetically speaking, that, that eventually we do make contact. Some sort of alien uh, species does come here. Like I remember reading not too long ago Stephen Hawking saying something that was a little bit unsettling where he's like, you know, if they do wind up coming here, they're probably going to come here to just plunder our resources and take off. I don't know if we've got any left. Yeah, yeah. If we've got any left, I feel like that that sounds more plausible than like these really like you know ethereal space beings coming down with some sort of greater wisdom. I don't know. Maybe I'm. Yeah, I'm not really feeling the tunics and the we come in peace. Yeah, it's probably going to be like a mining mission. Yeah, I think I would like to just you know maintain radio contact. That's the closest I think I want to come. <laughs> Uh, so, okay. So when we talk about just to kind of transition, like talking about the unknowable, uh, you know, which is a tent under which UFOs and all that stuff certainly falls, but you know, then you get into, um, broader thoughts about religion and about the human experience and about existential dilemmas that we, that we face as a species. And, uh, clearly you're working through this stuff in the book and I'm, I'm interested to hear, uh, you know, what the process of writing uh, this novel had on your views of uh, eternity or whatever you want to call it, you know, God, no God, um, you know, how, how did that affect the process? I mean, that, that was, it had had to be on your mind as you dove into this thing, whether it was conscious or subconscious. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is, it is a book about, 
exactly that problem in a different way people face it. And in my religious situation, I suppose, I could both describe as complex. You know, there are, I, I come not from any particular religious tradition. On my father's side, there are quite strict believing Hindus, and on my mother's side, there are people who are believing Protestant Christians, and my parents took the decision to bring me up with no religion. So for me, it was always a matter of kind of personal choice, personal inclination, and you know, the answers that I could ferret out these kind of questions. And quite early on, I became very suspicious of organized religion. So it seemed to me just a, a tool for coercion and social control. I mean, you know, need to rehearse all the reasons that one could come to those conclusions. But, you know, I think even almost more than if you've got a ready-made spiritual tradition that you, you're born into and brought up into and educated in, if, you know, if you're a kind of a free agent outside any tradition, those kind of finding answers to these things becomes more urgent. And I identify as an atheist in the sense that I don't believe in a personal creator God to whom I owe some kind of ethical relationship, let alone who's going to care about what food I eat or who I sleep with. Um, but having said that, the kind of um, completely mechanistic, um, deterministic scientific view of the universe that seems to me not to capture many important things about what it feels like to be alive on the planet and while I'm on the planet and while I'm prepared to be to accept that uh, this is I mean I'm prepared to accept that I'm a materialist you know, I believe that uh, what there is, is 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 all there is I don't believe in some kind of a spiritual other world which which infuses this one with meaning I have to say that there is a kind of it's, a, it's almost like the way you conduct yourself towards the fact of your existence and the way you conduct yourself and the way you orientate yourself towards the fact of being in the world that's where the importance and the nobility and beauty of all the various religious traditions and ethical traditions comes in you know, I've, as I was writing as writing this book I found myself reading more and more in mythical traditions and various faiths and uh, I've had a long-standing interest in, what, in Christianity, just called the negative mystical tradition, the notion that you kind of like, you kind of strip away everything about the world. You kind of you you look inwards. You look towards nothingness and absence and the void to try and to try and kind of find the source of of, of this what I'm calling this kind of spiritual orientation towards towards the world. And they're very similar to certain practices in Buddhism and certain practices in um, Sufi mysticism and, and, and all sorts of, kind of Hindu texts propose. There's almost like a set of techniques. It's something you do. It's a, it's a kind of a set of practices. And, and, you know, turning over these kind of ideas in my head as I, as I wrote the book, and I, I became more and more convinced that there's something very profound about um, human beings' relationship with the unknown and the unknowable, and that has to do also with the fact that we 
a finite, you know, we, we die. Something happens after we die, and we have to now orientate ourselves towards that. Dealing with the fact of that finitude and dealing with the fact of our, of our death as an individual. And all these questions, I think, are, remain profound questions no matter whether you give sort of different answers than I do to, to some of these uh, theological questions about creation and, and about the existence of, uh, as I said, of geist, of some sort of spiritual other world. Um, so these, you know, these are. You know, for for an atheist, these are just as urgent as you know, as, as for uh, as for somebody who's finding their answers in in religious faith. And uh, I've always been attracted to a kind of skepticism as an ethical position. You know, as a a sort of basis for 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 a kind of humble way of being in the world. Do you see what I mean? Well, yeah, no, I mean it's like I, I think I'm pretty similar. Like I just I, I find it a uh really hard to believe that that anyone has it all you know all figured out and i i think that if you're taking life seriously and you're trying to uh you know give serious thought to how to be in the world and you don't have that religion then like you say it's it's it, you know it becomes even more urgent and, and uh it becomes uh i don't know it's, it seems like there's a lot more risk or or um a lot more data. Yeah, I mean, you have to be very active because you're not you're not relying on the accumulated wisdom of some sort of off the shelf tradition. You know, you still have to ask these questions about value, about the human agency, about about meaning, mm. and you have to carry on answering them. And if you're giving kind of skeptical answers to those questions, then um, then you know your your the foundation for your decisions about what what constitutes a good life what constitutes the right thing to do in the world is, you know, it's a lot less certain perhaps than somebody who can find it in a, in a holy book. Well, do you ever find yourself envying people who are religious because they have it easier? <laughs> like, yeah, of course, you know, I think there's a great, you know, it's clearly a great consolation in, in having faith. You know, I'm not a person of faith, as I say, and, and, um, and I, you know, I mean, I, I, I respect those faith positions to the extent that they're they're still being kind of actively worked through by the people who are holding them. You know, where I dislike organized religion of all kinds of the, to the extent that it closes down questions. It's a kind of like you don't need to be asking this anymore because we've dealt with it and you know, here's you just follow the rules and shut up. Well, yeah, no. Um, I, I always say that, that I always say that the uh, when, whenever there's like a, a I, I call it a sky god, or just like a, a superhuman being to which somebody is attributing control over the universe and all of these powers, I always call that a conversation ender. Because exactly, it, 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 it's where it's where you're supposed to stop having a conversation and, and, and just shut up and start obeying. And um, you know, it's, it's not kind of god. I have a problem with so much, and I think people. Are, you know, there are many possible sort of philosophical positions where you could produce something that might look like God out of them. It's, it's, it's churches, it's, it's organized religion that really is the, the thing that I can't get with. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm interested in, uh, you know, you said that your parents essentially raised you without religion, and I was, mm -hmm. I was raised Catholic, so... Uh, I, I kind of was a kid who probably wished he was raised without religion, but right. what did that look like? I mean, was there something formal? Do you remember a conversation that your parents had with you where they said, 
you know, this is what we think, and this is how we're going to do it. Go figure it out for yourself, or, or how did that go? It's much, well, they, were, they were really making it up as they went along, because, I mean, I think there were a lot of things about their relationship that was quite unconventional. You know, in the early 70s in Britain, you know, mixed you know, Indian-English family was not a kind of common thing. But I remember, you know, I was allowed to, to, to kind of look in whatever direction I wanted. I remember at one point I decided because my friends were going to Sunday school, but I wanted to go to Sunday school. So a few Sundays I sat and listened to people telling me Bible stories, and I got a big dose of of, uh, kind of Anglican Protestantism through my school, which had those kind of church services, um, probably more more than Hinduism. My father, I think, would describe himself as a, as a believing Hindu, but within Hinduism, you can be a, a thoroughgoing materialist and not believe in any kind of uh, creator God. That's a perfectly acceptable uh, Hindu theological position. And, um, you know, I, I you know, occasionally I'd be exposed to other things like my grandmother and my grandmother uh, in India had uh, a top bush, a holy, holy shrub, effectively, on a, on a, a small shrine table in the courtyard and she worshipped in front of that. I remember as quite a small kid shooking her bowing to the plant. <laughs> and thinking now it's pretty weird. Yeah. Um but essentially, you know, no more no more weird than I mean transubstantiation is a strange idea, the kind of right. <laughs> especially in the, the Catholic version, the idea that that thing is literally turning into the body of Christ in, <laughs> in your mouth. Yeah. That's a pleasant, you know, it's a pleasant feeling. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back to my grandmother and her, you know, she had statues in her lawn of uh, the Virgin Mary and all this stuff, mm-hmm. you know. So I grew up with all that, but, uh, you know, then I moved away from it. And it's, it sounds like, I mean, did you ever find yourself longing as a child? I mean, obviously you, you gravitated and were curious about uh, Sunday school, but you, did you ever feel like, oh, wow, I'm structureless or, oh, wow, there's nothing for me to hold on to here or... It doesn't sound like it. I, I, I did, uh, but that was all kind of played out across lots of other aspects of my life as well, not just religion. Um, and I gradually grew to to kind of embrace it as a virtue, really, because I think you know if you're not if you're not playing for any particular team, you get to have quite an objective eye on how the game is being played. You know, if you're mm. if you're very thoroughly committed to one tradition or another, then you know. It's pretty hard to be objective so I you know I'm for other reasons very uh, sort of skeptical of, of, of people who who always cling to kind of half and home and tradition and, and so on because it seems it always seems to exclude people like me for whom those things are kind of complex and and uh, a bit uh, um, you know in motion you know and especially yeah, and I, and I, there's the kind of the old anti-Semitic insult, ruthless, com, uh, ruthless cosmopolitan. Yeah, that one's been thrown at me on the kind of comments on the newspaper articles once or twice. And, um, uh, you know, I, I kind of turned that round into, into a virtue. And so I think in a way that's kind of ceaseless, you know, Journeying and the fact that you haven't kind of closed down certain questions is, is, is a virtue. So, yeah, because a kid, you know, you want to be normal as a small kid. You want to be like your friend. So I think as soon as you're a bit further out into the world and you have a bit more behind you, then you kind of, you can see the advantages. Hmm. So with this book, uh, I want to talk a little bit about research as well. 
uh, because you know it's a it's a really ambitious book. You're spanning centuries. Uh, you're telling multiple stories uh, in multiple uh, eras. You have a, a 18th century Franciscan priest. You've got a 19th century Mormon silver miner, uh, a Wall Street uh, you know programmer savant. Uh, you know you have all these different you have all these different worlds that you're creating. And I'm I, I'm always fascinated by how people do this. Like, how much time did you spend digging in to do research to to create this stuff? A, a lot. Um, I'm kind of that temperament, a complete library nerd, and I'm I'm never happier than when I have a a, a, a big research program to undertake. Um, and I love. To be, I mean, researching for a novel is such a pleasure because you don't have any real kind of external constraints on what's the point, what you're supposed to be doing. You know, something feels important to you, and you can follow that path a bit further. So, what I tend to do is to be researching in parallel to writing, rather than before writing. You know, I'll be, I'll get things to a certain stage, and then it'll become clear that, you know, maybe I need to. To start sort of actually kind of putting putting words down on paper in order to find out what I don't know or what I don't understand, you know, and then you know at a certain point you might need to uh, go to a place or, or kind of get out. You know, basically I was kind of alternate between the library in New York and and kind of out in the desert, and that would be the the way that I was I was kind of always always keeping the project in in motion. But yeah, I mean it's, it's Notebooks and notebooks full of my almost indecipherable handwriting. Well, no, that's what I was going to ask you. Is that like you know you say research, and obviously that means reading, but is there? It doesn't sound like there's a super organized way of going about the actual like notation. You know, are you? I guess you, you sort of know where everything is, but it's not like you have, you know, six thousand. No, I'm not. I'm not like a kind of index cards guy. I think you know, if you're writing a piece of nonfiction, then then you have to be a lot more. Like that. I mean, the, you know, the, the sort of structural pattern of the book is a sort of free associative one, which meant that, you know, if, if it's kind of coming up in my brain next to the other thing in the brain, then, well, it's probably supposed to be there. Yeah. Well, I know, and, and talking about the different, uh, you know, uh, aspects of the book or the different parts and the structure of it, uh, it brings to mind, uh, you know, the, the concept of networked art, which I've heard you talk about before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I was reading the uh, New York Times book review. Uh, Douglas Copeland, ta- you know, refers to what you've been doing here as translit, which I think is somewhat synonymous with networked art. Uh, mm. co- correct? I mean, I, am I, or am I misreading it? But, uh, well, I mean, I'm very interested in the idea that one project for the artist, and I would say perhaps the most important project for those artists at the moment is to understand the the networked qualities of the world that we now live in. And by that, I don't simply just mean the internet. I mean the fact that we are, we have an understanding of ourselves as individuals meshed in, um, implicated in, in much larger sort of networks of social forces, political forces, economic forces, you know, and, and in the kind of physical way, you know, matter and matter and energy, you know, you, you, we experience things that are probably we wouldn't have had language to even, even kind of think about a generation or two ago. I mean, you know, to try and explain, imagine trying to explain a social network, so 
social media network to somebody from 1950. I mean, I think the kind of the actual texture of the kind of social experiences you have in in that situation is very very new and not and not well understood. But I'm also interested in 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 a kind of sense of the individual as uh, uh, here we go going crazy in my house now, it's dogs and doorbells and all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, so yeah, network art, and I think the novel is a really, really useful fight for doing this because the novel is a very flexible, baggy monster of a of an art form, and it kind of can deal with all sorts of scale changes. You know, you can you can you can sort of go out and, and see things in in grand terms. You, know, you can look at Napoleon retreating from Moscow, and you can sort of dive into the the, the tiniest details of, of, of a person's reaction to their circumstances. But, uh, so these, this sort of thing does interest me. I mean, the transit idea of Coopson has it. I mean, he's really hit on something interesting about, I mean, I call it rhyming or, or, or resonance, the fact that if you place some quite disparate things next to each other within the covers of a book, you know, by drawing an artificial boundary around them, you can force them, force the reader to 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 to, to, to see how they interact, to kind of make connections. I mean, you have to draw things together in fully conventional um, Hollywood-style plotting anymore. And I think, in certain ways, that kind of plotting is rather um, has been rather muted now. You know, for all its its kind of formal uh, perfection, it, it you know it, it kind of is it, is it a barrier to seeing things rather than helping us see things? Well, yeah, it seems like it seems really at odds with the way that I experience the world. You know, I find myself struggling with that as a writer, uh, working with plot. Like, you know, it just doesn't seem to doesn't seem to uh, be instinctive at all at this point mm. for me. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a kind of um, yeah. I mean, everybody's taught to do things in a certain way, especially in in, in screenwriting, that actually deliberately breaking those things open and leaving gaps and leaving leaving spaces, you know, potholes for the reader to fall into. It seems to me quite a, a, an interesting strategy right now. Yeah, well, okay. And so uh, what I want to ask next then would be, you know, to take all these different storylines and to take, uh, thing, you know, storylines that are happening in different time periods and to, um, you know, put them right up against one another and force the reader to interact with them and to interact with them together. You know that's one thing, but how do you achieve a narr- you know narrative unity out of that? Like you know this could be you know this is not a collection of stories. This is a novel, and making it a novel is no easy feat. So like, how do you do that? You know what I'm saying? Like, what what yeah yeah what, what I makes mean, it congeal? I think you know, you have to have a very close sense of of, of what you're you know of, of I mean of, of, of I, I sometimes say that a novel is a question that you don't know how to ask. There's a there's a kind of thrust or a kind of direction that you you what you want to explore. There's something that's troubling you or kind of needs that investment of time to deal with, but you can't frame it properly, and you can only kind of deal with it by telling stories and so and this and this was something that goes without men is a kind of several passes over the same terrain 
I kind of I wanted to thread it together with this present day story. There's a there's a couple out in the desert with their little boy uh, who goes missing, and around that sort of central story, which is relatively easy in a kind of progressive way for a reader to grasp in, and to kind of hang on to. I can hang the other the other stories, and so in that way, there is kind of a spine to this book. It's not just a complete. Um, yeah, you know, a collection of, of tales. I mean, the other unity I decided to put in is the place. All these stories converge at the same rock formation. There is a kind of another form of unity there across time. And so there are there are kind of things that that organise the book and make it more than just a you know a, a bunch of voices speaking. Um, and and but there's not the there's not the kind of nicely tied up with a bow on the top plotting that I think some people would expect to see and some people would find more comfortable than this kind of relatively new, I think, uh, a parallel model of doing things. So uh, so how long did it take you to, to finish the book? Um, I started sometime September, October 2008, and I was doing... Um, Changed to the cruise this uh, in spring 2011. So it was kind of it was quite quick. But I was you know, I was working in a very fierce, concentrated way for most of that time. I've kind of you know since I finished, I I haven't really I've done a lot of short things. I haven't I haven't had the energy yet to kind of head into something that complicated. Yeah, well, you'll have to go back out to the desert, you know, or something. Exactly, you'll have to go and sit in the middle of it, <laughs> middle of nowhere for a while when it comes to me. So, you know, the the other thing that this book does is, uh, you know, and I think you touched on this earlier, is that there are, you know, there's a certain thread that's sort of running through all these different stories and all these different characters' lives, and it plays with the idea of uh, storylines that kind of echo through the ages and repeat themselves. Mm-hmm. And what it makes me wonder, uh, you know, and I, I have this thought a lot, is, is, you know, are we learning anything as, as a people, as a species? You know, like, do you have any thoughts there? Like, when you look to history and you see, uh, you know, these particular story arcs happening repeatedly, uh, you know, it can sometimes, I, I can sometimes get down hard about it. Yeah, it can be very depressing. Do you, <laughs> do you, like, is there any cause for optimism or are we just screwed, basically? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think this kind of feeling is of, of either that nothing ever really changes, or, or we're kind of terribly belated, and we're coming after after the main event, which was back in the day. I think these are very common feelings, and they are they fundamentally miss the notion that things are really changing quite a lot, and they're changing very fast, and we're in the face of a kind of storm of of, of new. Stuff. You know, I mean, maybe as a, a species, we're not we're not doing terribly well on the ending war and loving one another kind of part of the program. But I do think that you know that we live in an extraordinary, exciting, and kind of challenging time. So um, you know, the idea that it's just repetition, I think, is wrong. But just in the same in the same way, the idea that there's this, you know, these, when I went to school, these all these weak history, the idea that you're you're, you're proposed your Progressing towards some final endpoint that will be better than where these stuff is off. I'm a bit suspicious of the fact that it is a straight line progress. The idea that it is straight line progress at the same time. So I don't know what you end up with. You end up with kind of spiral 
of some kind where you know elements repeat kind of there are scenes, there are rhymes, there are these uh, these things that kind of echo backwards, but at the same time, you know, time keeps slipping on. Mm. So I want to ask you about uh, your publication history a little bit. And in particular, I want to talk about your first book because you've had, uh, you know, by, by just about anybody's measure, a really good uh, career, you know, first part of your career. And your first book uh, was a huge success and it got a big advance and it got a lot of press and it got great sales. And, and basically what happened for you, and correct me if I'm wrong, is what any young writer would sort of dream of. And what I want to know is, was there any downside to that? Like, or was it as good as it sounds? <laughs> it was pretty good. Um, I mean, I think the kind of thing that wasn't visible in that story, because, um, you know, I, I could have, I could, as you said, I got a big book deal when I was 29, 30, for, uh, and, and the novel was reasonably well received afterwards. And so it wasn't, you know, it was a kind of scary moment when you know you've been paid a bunch of cash everybody's kind of no one's seen the thing yet and you're waiting to either have your head chopped off and to be the guy who is the big mistake or you know or to be able to have a career I mean that was nerve-wracking but actually you know I've been writing seriously since I was 21 and there were two other manuscripts that I completed that had not you know no one had wanted to know about because you know I hadn't had an agent hadn't had any kind of recognition at all and I I'd spent a long time gradually building up an ability to make my living as a writer through doing all kinds of journalistic writing and uh, writing essays and short stories and so on. So when when I was offered a book contract, I'm not gonna say that, you know, I felt that it was absolutely my just yes, but I you know, it was it was the end point of a lot of work. It wasn't like I, it, I didn't feel like it had just kind of landed from the sky. Um, and the downside for TV days of that situation is if, you know, if, if everybody has big expectations of your first book um, and you don't meet those expectations, then, you know, maybe maybe you'll be damaged goods after that. And it's, it's I've seen it happen to several other people who've been kind of trumpeted as, the next big thing, and for whatever reason, the critics haven't kind of, or the public haven't got, got behind the the book, and uh, and then publishers have got very nervous, and one of few people aren't working anymore because of that situation. Um, there's also the kind of weirdness of writing a second novel. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, how do you manage that? Like, once you have this big early success, you're out of the gates with this debut. You know, the the, the first two books that didn't get published, notwithstanding. You know, you, you you publish this first book. It's it's a huge uh, deal, and then you've got to go do the second book. Like, how do you? Yeah, and you got How do you manage the psych? You know, the psychological aspect of that. Well, not not always very well. I think because <laughs> um, the, the big difference is for the second book, it's the it's you're doing it in public. You know that whatever you write is going to get read, and one of the freedoms of writing when you haven't yet published. Is that you're still kind of half just in your bedroom, and that there's and there's you know you're you're able to let yourself go perhaps in in a way that when you know I, I well I was just, just in my own my own experience was like a crippling self consciousness descended on me. You know I spent a period of several months more or less just staring at the blinking cursor, wondering 
whether I kind of, you know, I was about to kind of fail hard in public. And, um, and you know, that was that whole thing was making me very nervous. And it took me a long time to kind of overcome the friction and, and be able to write again. And then Genesis, I did manage to get something else out and started to have a good time doing it. And that was, you know, that was when I realized that this might have a future. I might have to be about to go to, go to, go to have a breakdown. <laughs> but yeah, it was such and, it was such and go there. And I know, I know several other people who've had big first novels and they have all had this thing. There's something very, very weird about going again. And then I think after that, you know, after that, you, you know, you know the shape of what it is to try and be a working fiction writer, and and to, to you know, at that point, you're not wondering, am I going to be able to do anything at all? You're wondering whether what's really worth doing and what's going to push me and what's, you know, what can I do at this point to to try and deepen and and, and broaden my project. So is there any, like, there, there, it doesn't sound like there's any kind of magical elixir to getting through it on the second one. It was basically just a matter of continuing to sit there until finally it, it came? Yeah, I mean, I'm a great believer in, in going sideways to avoid writer's block, like, rather than kind of banging your head against the situation if nothing's coming out and go do something else completely, you know, either writing-wise, write something else, or, or, you know, or just go do the washing up. Um, you know, and that's that kind of you know, never ever let the panic build beyond a certain point. As long as you're kind of doing, doing something, then you know suddenly you'll find a way back into the, the zone where you're actually making stuff. So, do, okay. So then, uh, the book comes out, or any of your books come out. Do you read reviews? I do read reviews. I tend to, I, I tend to just skim reviews, whether they're good or or, or bad. Just just to kind of get a sense of, of do people think this is working or, or not? And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm not immune to, to praise. Right, right. <laughs> it's, nice, it's nice when people say nice things, obviously, but at the same time, you know, that's, that's not really, that's, you, know, you know, it's not really kind of why you're doing it. There's always, I mean, it's such a big investment of time writing a novel. It's just a weird process to do. It's, it's almost like your own your own needs in, in writing it at the prime thing. You know, your own reasons for for wanting to spend so much time in a particular area or with a particular project. You know, and, and the the fact that other people get some some pleasure out of reading what you've done. Is amazing, but sometimes it sometimes feels weirdly secondary. I mean, maybe that's that's just just me, but it's just a slightly defensive way of, of of kind of making it so that criticism isn't you know make or break. Well, you can't spend too much time thinking about uh, what people are thinking about it; otherwise, you'd never get any work done. I would imagine. Precisely. Um, so you're in New York, and you and you mentioned earlier that you came over here on a fellowship. Is that correct? <laughs> So, yeah, that's right. And that sort of extended beyond the fellowship. Yeah, I mean, the fellowship was a year. The um, it was a it was a great year, and then at the end of that, I, I just hadn't finished here. You know, I didn't want to go back to London, and London seemed to be going through one of its periodic dull phases. So, I've ended up staying here, and and um, 
and uh, now I'm about to get married to an American, and uh, so this is going to be part of my life from from here on in. Whether I'll I'll end up making my home in New York, I don't know, but it's certainly a, a possibility. Well, and it's you know there is like there is some tradition of British novelists coming over to the states. I feel like. I mean, I think of like Martin Amos, you know, spent a lot of time here. He's, yeah, he's just arrived. He's living in Brooklyn now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, you know, and, but he but he had spent time earlier in his life here, had he not? I think he had, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just, is that is that a, am I reading that correctly? Is there like a strong tradition that you felt as a young British writer? Was it something that was in your head early or is it just, you know, something that's... I think, of, yeah, yes, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, there is, there is a sense, you know, that, I mean... In English language fiction, I think there are a lot of there's a lot of really good novelists working here. There's a scene. I mean, in in you know the two the two real writing cities in America, New York and LA, and um, you know certainly here in New York, it, it's a kind of crossroads for people from all over the world who are doing who are doing creative things with words, and and so I get to meet a lot of people. There are a lot of opportunities to lecture and teach and and uh, and and just kind of be part of a scene, really. It's very exciting city from that point of view. And um, and yeah, I mean, London London has a has a lot going for it. Uh, but at the, at the moment, I'm not super excited by by the work that's coming out of London. Well, I was going to say too, like when you since you have a vantage on both places, like what is the difference or, or the similarity between the publishing situation in London than what you see in New York? Well, there's some very concrete differences. I mean, I mean the, for example, like a young American writer is very likely to have a book of short stories as their first publication because firstly, they're more likely than a British writer to have been through some kind of formal tuition and an MFA program and to have kind of developed a body of story-length work. As a result of that, and secondly, there's a market for short stories that just doesn't exist in uh, the UK. In in Britain, you've got to come out of the gate with a novel, and the way it probably should be a statement novel of some kind, is because of the the brutality of the market these days. Nobody, you know, once upon a time, people could start quietly and modestly, and and learn their craft and while getting published and while getting some kind of advances. Whereas now they want, you know, there's so much competition for just attention, really, that people place an inordinate amount of value in in, in London on on the kind of the big personal wall. In terms of of how things kind of pan out for writers later on, I think the MFA culture is growing over in the UK, so, and I'm not sure. I, I think that's altogether a good thing. I'm quite suspicious of uh, of the the idea that uh, that you can formalise writing teaching in such a way. I mean, obviously there are plenty of things that you can teach. That's a very practical thing that you can teach, but you know, an increasing number of young writers seem to write about the very narrow world of the. Iowa Writers Workshop, for example, and uh, rather than rather than kind of coming into the business of writing from from whatever life experience they might have had, you know, in the olden days, you know, you you packed your kit bag and worked on a tram steamer, 
those are the days, I think. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, I uh, I have so enjoyed talking with you, and uh, I congratulate you on this novel. It's it's you know it's clearly getting uh, tremendous reviews and hopefully sales to match. So. Uh, congrats on that. And then I guess last question is, do uh, you have another book? I guess you said you were working on short pieces, but is there any inkling of what the next thing might be at all? There is another, there is another novel that I've started, and I, I don't know if it'll work yet or not, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm working on something set about 200 years in the future. Oh, okay. Yeah, that much. <laughs> well, uh, hopefully it comes together. We'll be interested to see uh, see it when it's done. And thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, guys, that's it. That's the program. That's Hari Kunzru. Go get his novel. It's called Gods Without Men. It's available now in hardcover from Kanaf. You can find him on the web at harikunzru.com. That's H-A-R-I, and then Kunzru is K-U-N-Z-R-U. He's also on the Twitter, and his handle is at Hari Kunzru, and he has a Facebook page. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It's on Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check them out at killrockstars.com. And otherwise, uh, not a lot to add uh, you know, to the whole uh, dogs and evolution and predators thing that I was discussing at the front end of the show, National Geographic, Wolves, and uh, all the rest. It's a lot to process. It, uh, it can hurt my brain, uh, the natural order of things, if, if there is, in fact, any order at all. So, uh, hey, if you like the show, if you enjoy it, if you find the experience beneficial in some way, please remember to go over to iTunes and give the show a good rating and a nice little review. That helps the cause, and I would appreciate it very much. Uh, to do that, instructionally speaking, all you got to do is go over to your iTunes, open it on your computer, Go to the iTunes store, search for other people with Brad Listy, and that's where you rate it. And that's where you review it right there. So otherwise, uh, that's it. That's all I got. Please remember that Benjamin Franklin was still making marriage proposals to younger women in his mid-70s and that Herman Hess was at one time a patient of Carl Jung. I will be back again soon with another program, another conversation with another author. Thank you for listening. Uh, please try to relax and, and not worry too much. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to go sit down, and I'm going to have a word with myself quietly. <laughs>